talk about building God a glorious house. First Chronicles 22, I'm going to begin reading with verse number 5. First Chronicles 22, beginning with verse number 5. David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical, meaning very magnificent, of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born unto thee, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Let's pray. Father, these words are wonderful. and We are glad that they're in the scriptures. For a few moments now, as we unfold some of the truths that you've placed in here, we pray that you speak to all of our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly, and I pray that the mighty Holy Ghost speak through me to all of us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Of course, David being one of the popular characters of the Bible, we're familiar with the fact that God called him as a little boy, and he ended up being someone whose name has gone down in history. He did great things. You can see in the early part of this chapter where, where he made preparations for the temple. It says in verse 2 that he gathered the, the foreigners in the land so that they could participate in building God a house. You can see in verses 3 and 4 how he prepared iron in abundance, and lots of cedar trees that were brought in. But you can also see where he says, of Solomon, his son, that he was young and tender. That is to say that this is a very big task. I'm not quite sure that Solomon would be able to accomplish it on his own. I don't think that is always the case from God's perspective, but I do believe that's the case from ours. We look at some people and we don't think they're capable or ready at a particular time when, in fact, from God's perspective, they are more than ready. And whatever it is that David wanted to build, he wanted it to look nice. He wanted to be the talk of the nations. Now, we don't think quite like this today. Most people, when they think of buildings, they're not trying to build something so extravagant that people will boast about the $6,000 or $12,000 stained glass windows. There still are a few people that are interested in that. 
But David's interests were very clear. He wanted to build something so magnificent that people in other countries would talk about how beautiful that temple was. That was his objective. And he was only hindered from achieving his objective because of what the Lord had told him. And as you can see there in verse number six, that's where David began to let it be known that he wanted to build a house under the name of God. Now notice he, he didn't want to build it with his name on it. The primary purpose of the temple would be for worship. In this day and age, you wonder sometimes what churches are built for. Some people build beautiful sanctuaries only to also make money on the side by renting them out for secular things. But I think if people put together their offerings and money is saved and spared and prepared for the building of a sanctuary, then the primary function of that building ought to be the worship of God. We've all probably been inside churches where they have the notice on the board that says, come on out on Tuesday night, folks, going to be bingo night for the seniors. Well, you know, bingo isn't a sin. I'm not implying that at all. But I'm just saying that all of those things should be secondary to what is the primary purpose for putting the building up in the first place. Worshiping God. To magnify his name. Not to build something in which he could say positive things about the Hittites or glorify the Canaanites, but the worship of a holy God. So when we gather a couple of times a week and we come in here, there's nothing holy about a building. There's something holy about us, but we do come to reverence the name of the Lord. David had an objective, and you can see that in verse 8, he intended to do something, but he says there in verse 7, it was in my mind to do it. You know that the, the, the pathways of life are paid with good intentions. And there are a lot of people who have intended to do things that they never saw come to completion in their life. And it's not that they wouldn't come to completion. It's just that it was never God's desire for them to complete the task. In this instance, it wasn't even on David's side to begin the process. But the mind was settled on God's house, and that's where our mind should be at. We should be thinking about God, thinking about building stuff for him, thinking about it, magnifying his name, building something that lasts forever. Your mind, as the scripture says, when it's meditated on God, God will keep it in perfect peace. Paul said the mind should think on things that are pure, holy, and lovely. So our thoughts should be, as David's was, regarding the house of God, and we know that he cared about the house of God. I mean, let us not forget, this is the man that wrote psalms. This is the man that danced when the ark was brought back into Jerusalem. But he intended to put together a structure where people could come and worship God and where God's name would be declared. And just as he began this entire project, that's when the word of the Lord came to him, or I should say before he began the project, the word of the Lord came to him and said, you have shed too much blood. He was a warrior. David wasn't somebody who just sat around. He was a warrior. 
And when it says he's made great wars, let's not forget some of these great wars he was involved in had to do with him being obedient to God. And in his obedience to God, now he finds that his obedience to God is now preventing him from building God a house. You say, how is that? David was a shepherd boy who had defeated bears and lions. And then one day, a prophet comes up to him and pours a horn of oil upon his head. He said, you're anointed to be king. The very next chapter, he's got to deal with Goliath. Beautiful story of how one little boy with a few stones out of a brook went and defeated a giant. But immediately after Goliath, he had to deal with Saul. And Samuel talks about the war that lasted for years between the house of Saul and the house of David. Goliath was a quick fix. But with Saul, he wrestled for years. Saul reigned for 40 years and David was on the run many times for his life. And if if Saul wasn't enough, think of the battles he had in his home with his own sons. Sin led to these wars. I don't know how many people he killed. I don't know how many soldiers lost their lives fighting against him and fighting alongside him. But I'm certain he stood at the graves of a lot of men and had to speak kind words to a lot of wives and children about their dads. And now the Lord says, you've shed too much blood on the earth, but he gives him a word Because obviously God speaks in verse 9, he tells him you're going to have a son, gives him the gender, gender, and he'll be a man of rest. I mean, how, how nice that must have been for David to hold a baby in his arms and hear God speaking to him about peace and rest, especially when you're a man that's been living in caves, fighting all the time. I think if you track David's career, You'll find just like with the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, God rarely let them stay at an oasis too long a time. All of the respites they had near an oasis were short. Then they were back out there wandering around. And when you look at David's life, you'll see that the, the periods of rest and calm in his life were not lengthy. It was one battle after another. And so imagine him holding that newborn baby in his arms and thinking about the fact here's going to be a child that's going to have a life so different than mine. That is what most parents want for their kids. Most parents want their kids to have the things that they did not have. And if you struggled early in life and had difficulties early in life, you want your kids to succeed in places where you may have failed. Or even if you did not fail, you want them to succeed you in an even greater measure. So here's David looking at that baby. wonder how many times have parents strolled up and down the hallway at a hospital carrying a newborn, hoping that that child doesn't have the life that they've lived. Heard a preacher tell one time about when he was an alcoholic and his boy was born and he said he held that baby in his arms and all he could do was cry. He said nobody even understood why he was crying. They thought maybe he was crying because he was happy 
that the child was born, but that wasn't it. He was crying because he knew he was an alcoholic. He couldn't help what he was, and he did not know how to get free, but he's holding that beautiful baby, and he's thinking to himself, I do not want this child to grow up and become what I am. Think of that. He says here in verse 9, I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. His name shall be Solomon. It's a name that means peaceable. Find another place in the Bible where he was called Jedida, gift of God, given of God. But he says he will give peace and quietness. That means that Solomon's presence in the wake of his father's death brought peace not only to the palace, but to the greater regions of Israel. Now let's, let's not forget Solomon was not a warrior like dad. I mean, David walked around with several chips on either shoulder. And if you said the wrong thing or bumped into him and knocked the chip off, then he pulled out a sword, a bow and arrow or a spear, and he was ready to fight. Solomon was more of the diplomat. If he thought the Egyptian pharaoh or the Hittite king wanted to fight him, he was, he was much more inclined to say, look, rather than us get into these fisticuffs, why don't we unite and become one? You give me two or three of your daughters, I'll marry them, and then we'll become one as a family. And that's how he ended up with over a thousand wives and concubines. Surely you know that any man with that many women is not a fighter. He doesn't have time to fight. He has no time for a battlefield. So Solomon was more of the diplomat where his father had a totally different passion. And the scripture here says, Israel enjoyed the calm and peace of their father's diplomacy. In verse 10, he's going to build a house. And that's what Solomon did. You can read the Stories in Kings and Chronicles, how he put it together. It was a grand and glorious place. He was filled with wisdom. People came from all directions to hear what he had to say. And let's not forget that Jesus told us that just as the Queen of the South came to hear the wisdom of Solomon's lips, Jesus said, A greater than Solomon is here. Now we understand then that. Unlike Solomon, Jesus didn't fight any battles with knives and anything like that. But we also know, according to Jesus' own teaching, he said, you cannot take a person's home unless you bind the strong man. Jesus did that. He healed the sick. He cast out devils. He, he fought against the prince and powers of darkness. He resisted evil. He was involved with spiritual battles to the point that Colossians even tells us that when he died on the cross, he spoiled powers and principalities. He paraded through the heavenlies the defeat of the devil so that everybody knew Christ was Lord of all and King of kings. Totally different kind of a warrior. Don't be surprised when Jesus comes back, as it says at the end of Revelation. He's not coming back as a meek and lowly lamb. He's coming back riding on a horse ready to fight. And with the sword of his mouth, people are going to be destroyed. So just as Solomon came into the earth and the Lord declared this young man was going to produce peace. And it provided all kinds of 
joy for David. Imagine what it must have been like when Jesus was born. Joseph and Mary looked in the eyes of that beautiful baby. and All the gifts were coming. The angel had already spoken. You'll call his name Jesus because he's a savior. Names mean everything in the Bible. Abram, exalted one, exalted father. Abraham, father of many nations. Moses, somebody that's drawn out of the water. All of these biblical names. Daryl, beloved of God. Just names that you did. See, you didn't know that was a Syriac word. That is. Daryl is actually house of God in, in old Aramaic. So from this perspective then, Jesus comes into the world and he himself is the prince of peace. Now Solomon's kingdom enjoyed peace and calmness because he reigned. How about you and me? How about each one of us? How about the fact that God gives us peace when other people don't have peace? God gives Christians sleep when other people can't sleep. Difficult sometimes when people pass through times of anxiety and adversity. But the one thing I do know, the scripture says, God gives his beloved sleep. And we can be calm and assured knowing that God will preserve us and take care of us even when everything else is falling apart. People that don't know God, people who have no relationship with God, they can't experience that peace and quietness that we have in this kingdom in which we live. But verse 10 in the first sentence, it was Jesus that built a beautiful house. He said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Gates of hell won't prevail against it. He didn't build something out of wood, metal, and stone. He built something that has to do with us, clay. And he has placed an eternal treasure in earthen vessels so that every day that we walk on this earth, we have the treasure of God's life inside of us. And we know that just like Solomon was his son and he was the father and there was a relationship, Jesus heard the father say at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father spoke from heaven at the transfiguration and said, this is my son, hear him. Well, the relationship was real. Well, Jesus made it very plain that for folks like you and me, we also experienced that same relationship because we're sons and daughters of God. God had no grandchildren, only sons and daughters. And he said, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom. So what Jesus accomplished at Calvary will last forever. A thousand years from now, when we're not hearing the sound of rain bouncing on the rooftop, we're still going to be praising God and glorifying his name. A million years from now, when the devil is gone and has disappeared, Christ will still reign through all of eternity. Now let me say this in verse 11. He speaks of how God's going to prosper him as he builds the house of God, do you realize God gives you what you need in order to do what you need to do in the local church? Obviously, some people can do more than other people, but everybody can do something. So do something lest you do nothing. And whenever God blesses you and prospers you and gives you full possession of gifts that you can provide to him, Make sure that you give back to him what he asks for. And this is how he opens the windows of heaven. Selfish people don't build God a house. 
Selfish people will not build God a house because selfish people are trying to build their own kingdom, their own lifestyle. But if you think about what God means to you and how important he is to you and how impressive he is to you, you'll give God what he asks for. I would never want to be the kind of person that only talks to God when I'm in trouble. And I would never want to be the kind of person that starts tithing and offering after I've gotten into trouble. I would never want to be the person who starts praying once the roof collapses and the bottom falls. I, I want to be the one that has a relationship with God continually. He's my father. I'm the son. I don't want to just talk to him when I have a need. You know, there's some parents that do experience that. Sometimes adult kids don't call mom and dad unless they want something. And very often mom and dad in their mercy and in their love and in their grace, they'll give them sometimes what they need. But you know what mom and dad really wants? They want a phone call throughout the week to say, hi, how are you doing? Yeah, that's what they want. So that's why I call my mom every day, sometimes five times a day. I called her three times today before three o'clock and she said, boy, what do you want? So I want to talk to my mommy, you know, talk to my mom. Okay, so then verse 12, he says, the Lord give you wisdom and understanding. That's what it takes to build God's house. That's what it takes to be the house of God. We are the temple of God corporately. We're the house of God individually. The spirit of God is taking up residence within us. It takes the wisdom of God to live as a holy temple of God. You can't do it without the mind of God. People have tried, but it's never worked. But he says that if you will allow me to help you, verse 13, you will prosper if you take heed to fulfill the statutes. He says, be strong and of good courage, dread not nor be dismayed. Folks, what are you afraid of? What kind of an enemy is there in your life that can defeat you? Not a one. What kind of problems do you have that are so great that you can't overcome them? Not a one. It doesn't matter how bad the obstacle course looks in your life. I give you my word. God can help you navigate every challenge. You can overcome it by simply walking with him. So wisdom and understanding gives us the ability to approach the problems that the adversary brings to us and we still can overcome them as the Savior did. And we can do it with the full assurance that God is with us. That's the calmness and the peace that is necessary. And when the devil rears up his head, God can show you where to put every footprint because that is the business that he's involved with. Now there's a gentleman that many years ago, more than a century ago, was in a Bible college in Beulah Heights Bible School over in New Jersey, I believe it was. And while in school, he was praying and asking God, what do you want me to do? And he went to sleep one night, had a dream or a vision, but in that dream, he saw what to him appeared to be the devil standing on a mountain. And surrounding the devil was a sea of black faces that were coming up the hill. And every time they got to the top of the hill, that devil would take each one of them and throw them over a precipice as they were screaming and yelling, falling to their demise. And so he, he, in that dream, he said he heard himself saying, 
Oh God, who will tell them what's at the top of the hill so that they won't keep climbing up there? And he heard a voice that said, will you go and tell them? Well, he said in that dream, he yielded and it gave God an eternal yes. So when he woke up, he felt like he ought to go to Africa. Not knowing where to go, not knowing what particular country to go to, he ended up on a boat in the year 1920, and he went to Liberia. And Liberia in 1920 didn't have any of the conveniences that we have here in America today. And making his way to Liberia with his sister, he got there and set up shop in a particular village. And in this region, they had already had 22 full gospel missionaries that had died from sickness and disease. Twenty-two headstones greeted him when he got there with his sister. Eight months later, his beautiful bride from Bible college came, and here they were all out there together trying to do ministry, marching through the jungles, having to deal with wild animals, I mean lions and every other kind of thing you can think of. But he said they were praying about how to reach these villages. They just didn't know what to do. Outside of this one village where they went, they had this big hill or mound of juju, which it looks like a big mound of mud, but it's hardened dung with all kinds of other stuff mixed in there. And for them, this hill was their god. And the missionary told him, you, you need to get rid of this because... You've got missionaries here now, and it's, it's disrespectful to have this God of the dunghill here, and the missionaries are here. And they had just preached something out of Elijah, I think. And the chief of the village said to him, we'll get rid of our dunghill when you prove your God is bigger than our gods. You keep telling us about Elijah and some fire that came down, and Jesus healing blind people and lepers and all of that. One out of every five people in this village is a leper. We've got blind people everywhere. Prove that your God is stronger than ours and we'll get rid of this. Well, he, he the missionary, Brother Garlock, did not feel like he was adequately fit for this task. But he did read Mark, Mark chapter 16 with his team. They prayed and they fasted. They didn't have any particular plan, but they were just asking God to open a door and help them. Well, they found out there was a lady in village that had just died, and so they went to call on the family. When they got there, they noticed the lady was still breathing. They said, well, how can you take this lady out to bury her if she's still breathing? They said, all oh, that little breathing she's doing, she'll be dead before we get her out there to the uh, cemetery. And so they practiced then excarnation, which is you leave the body exposed to the elements and let the wild fowls of the air and the wild animals eat the body. And so they were just going to take the body out there and leave it. So the missionary said, well, if we pray and ask our God, since you, you're satisfied that your witches and warlocks can't help, if we pray and ask our God to heal her, would you find this sufficient enough for you to get rid of your gods? They said, of course. They stood over her and they prayed and rebuked death and asked God to heal them and said, God, we don't really have any faith for this, but we're living by the faith of the Son of God, so would you please step in and intervene? He did. And the man said he went back home, ended up with a fever, was 
out of commission for a week. A week later, returned to the village, said to the man, how's your wife? And he said, she's in another village shopping right now. So when she came back, they hardly recognized her because of how full she was in her body and flesh because she was eating. And he called all of the villagers together and gave the testimony of that woman that was about dead and said, I want you to go out here and set this juju hill on fire. Well, the chief of the village went out there and did it. Just set it on fire and said they could hear the sounds or the voices of just spirits crying out as that thing was burning. And there were people running frantically all over the village saying, put it out, put it out. We're going to be poisoned now because you're killing our gods. The Indian, the village chief, I should say, of that area told all the people that were crying, said, look, if our God is not big enough to defend himself against this white man, then we don't need to be worshiping this God. Well, later on, he found out there was a mountain in that region that they said belonged to the devil. Only people who worship the devil are there. And he said, take me to the mountain. Well, they didn't want to go because they said the people who go to that mountain never return. He said, take me to the mountain anyway. Well, sure enough, he started walking with them. They were guiding him there. The closer he got to that big, huge hill, the more he noticed that the leaders were falling to the back. And they didn't want to be out in the front because they knew something terrible was going to happen to him. They thought maybe his leg was going to shrivel up and he'd fall over dead. So they let him keep walking. And they just kind of stood back. Nothing happened to him. He got to the foot of the hill. He noticed that the ascent was steep. He climbed the hill and he stood up there looking around, whispering the name of Jesus. Nothing happened to him at all. When he finally came down from that hill, or I should mention, while he was up there, he stood there thinking to himself, okay, it seems like I've seen this place before. Then he recalled that vision he had in Bible college years before. That was the hill. He saw the devil tossing people over the cliff. He came down that hill and the people in the surrounding villages had came outside the villages standing to watch to see what would happen to him. And when they saw nothing occurred, they fell down on their knees and walked away from their ancient gods and began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Here was a man that prayed and said, God, we need divine intervention. Now, just like David told this young man, the Lord is going to be with you and he's going to prosper you, bless you, protect you. That is exactly what we have with the presence of Jesus. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Folks, you can count on the presence of God. He's not going to leave you. You can count on his divine protection. He's there to look after you. Even when you don't know what to pray, sometimes you don't know what to say. You're not even quite sure how it's going to work out. And then God suddenly intervenes. And something wonderful comes out of that. This is how Solomon was able to get started in building God's house. It started with a word. Dad received a word from God. He shared a word from God. Solomon believed that word from God, then Solomon acted on that word of God, and from that obedience, a temple was built. And even to this day, we're still talking about that wonderful house that Solomon made.
Isn't it good to follow the Lord? I mean, I can't think of anybody else I'd rather have as my lead, as my guide, to have him up front taking us where we need to go. And all we have to do is humble ourselves in his presence. Those that are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. To have Jesus on your side. You don't know what Christ might do for you, but I can tell you this. Every day with him is exciting if you begin that day and end that day reading the good book. Because these stories, oh, they encourage and they edify. I look at this and I say, Father. Maybe you put a few more verses in the Bible last night while I was asleep, you know. But God has a way of keeping a smile on our face. Come on, let's stand. Praise God, praise God, praise God. So whatever you're facing today, whatever you are believing God for, trusting him for, if you feel like the adversary is fighting you on every side, know this, the presence of the Lord is with you. Yeah. You can be bold and strong when you know God is with you. You get on the road and you've got to drive a long ways. You've got to believe God is in the car with you. Tiff will tell you a lot of times when we get ready to drive, I always pray, Lord, keep the sleepy drivers off the road. Keep the wildlife in the ditch and far away from us. You say, well, what happens when the wildlife comes out of the ditch and in the road and you hit it? Then the next time we get in the car, we pray again. Keep the wildlife off the road. You, you don't let one situation hinder you from talking to God again and again. You keep on praying and you believe God. Amen? Amen. There's no doubt about it. Come on, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you for the mighty outpouring of this natural rain, but also, Lord, for a spiritual outpouring of the latter rain in this region. I pray, God, in your true church, there would be an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Let multitudes of people turn their praises toward you, and we pray that the anointing of God would set captives free. Use each one of us to be divine witnesses and evangelists for you. Help us, O oh God, to shine the light in dark places, and we pray that a harvest of souls would come into the kingdom through what we do and what others do also. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, 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 Amen. amen.